you're hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. Hello. You found The Liberal Soul. My name is Luke Mason. This is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The liberal soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish in it. Please be aware that this podcast has crude language and bad words, but so it goes. Welcome again to The Liberal Soul. today's episode, I decided to talk about a book that, in retrospect, or like when I think about it, reflection, I guess, is kind of actually the proximate impetus behind this entire podcast. And by that, I mean, it's not a classic or old book or text in the history of liberal philosophy, but It's kind of a compilation of all of what liberalism is and something that when I read it for the first time, I found it quite arresting in how it put into words so much of what I was thinking and feeling as I wrestle with my concept and definition of and living out of the idea of being a liberal-minded person or in a liberal hearted person. So it's the book, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. And it was written by the Canadian writer, although I think he lives in the US now, um, named Adam Gopnik. And I first heard of him actually because he was on Bill Maher's show, uh, Real Time with Bill Maher. And he was talking about that book. And when I heard the title, I was like, oh, this is interesting. So I guess it would have been 2019 when I read it, because that's when it was published. So as of recording, it's only it's only a book that's even two years old. But there were just so many points in it that I found so personal and so touching, even though it's, for lack of a better term, it is a book of liberal philosophy. It humanizes liberal philosophy so much, which meshes with my kind of take on it all is that that's actually the point. The point of liberalism is how manifestly human it is and that we develop the institutions that we do in order that it may aid that human and humane side of human life that we can all go and try and partake in, which includes the arts and music and relationships and family and sports and all of the things that make life so great. And in fact, one of the very last lines of the book that he says is that liberals love laws because they give us more time for everything in life non-law-like, and that freedom is the time to discover what it means to be alive. And so that kind of thread, that causal link between a liberal-minded society and politics and philosophy being what is necessarily underguarding and underpinning the idea of the existential freedom to go 
discover what it is to be alive was so resonant to me. And so I decided that I wanted to go through some of the main thoughts in his book. Again, it's called A Thousand Small Sanities. The subtitle is The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. I don't know. You ever notice how sometimes (laughs) there can just be a, a book that catches you at the right time in your life? You have like the perfect intellectual scaffolding already built. You have these nascent ideas already floating around in your subconscious, perhaps. And then you just read a book written by someone that just so perfectly distills and articulates those those floating rationales and floating half-formulated ideas. And so today I'm going to go through what I like. I'm not going to go through the whole book because it's actually a pretty decently sized book. It's like 250 pages. So at the outset, I would recommend if you're at all interested in a very human take on the philosophy of liberalism, definitely read this book. But there's some pretty major parts in it that I wanted to bring up because I think they tie directly to some of the things I'm trying to do on this podcast. So, uh, Thousand Small Sanities. So I have the basic books, soft cover copy uh, that I'm using today. So the very first thing I want to read out that he writes on page 13, um, one of the great things that he talks about in this book is that liberalism is... (laughs) kind of like an emergent philosophy from human beings living together and trying to figure out how to do that better and better. Very much an improvement sense paradigm. So here's a quote that he says from page 13 of the book that I'm using. Gopnik. Love, like liberty, tugs us in different directions as much as it leads us in one. Love, like liberty, asks us to be only ourselves, and it also asks us to find ourselves in others' eyes. Compromise is not a sign of the collapse of one's moral conscience. It is a sign of its strength. For there is nothing more necessary to a moral conscience than the recognition that other people have one, too. Oh, it's just such a great line. It's hinting at the very kind of genesis of the liberal tradition, which is the understanding, the term of moral conscience, of understanding that other people have the same software running in their mind. So you can think about it like me, Luke, I want to be able to find food and shelter. And then I also want to be able to find um, good friendships and peaceful places to live and meaningful work to be doing. Like you can ascend uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs there. And the true beginning of this for a liberal soul, I guess, (laughs) uh, roll credits, is understanding that other people also have this functional reality in their life. This is an obvious truism if you really stop to think about it, but it's, it's it's a super important point philosophically because it's really the beginning of being able to move out of what in philosophy is called solipsism. Understanding and respecting the fact that other people have hopes, dreams, fears, happinesses, uh, surprises, trivialities, boredoms, and intrigues, just like you do. And there's no non-prejudicial reason that your feelings, thoughts, dreams, etc. shouldn't just dominate somebody else's. That's kind of, that default setting of domination is kind of one of the laws of nature. Uh, It's very much the law of like the strong man or the dominating culture over the weaker culture that has 
sadly been pretty much the norm in most of human history. And I ta- I've talked about this in other contexts, but just the understanding that other people feel the pull of the world as well as you is what begins to even help you comprehend a liberal ethos. And I just, I think that that's such a, a great aspect of the beginning of this book, because he's talking about that, that moral conscience, the recognition other people have it too. He's talking about John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor's relationship and their, and their romance and how messy it was because she was married to someone she didn't love. And they were, in a Charles Dickens novel, David Copperfield sense, Harriet Taylor was unequally yoked to, to a partner who just couldn't engage with her on her level intellectually. And and that was a real hard thing for her life. And then on top of all that, she's living in an era where women don't have the rights yet that they are allotted to by being born people, just like anybody else. And so this is the backdrop of the point that Gopnik makes. And then the main heuristic he uses for the book is contrasting a rhinoceros and a unicorn, because the point was John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor would meet at the London Zoo in front of the rhinoceros exhibit so that it wouldn't be nearly as conspicuous that they were talking to each other because everyone was staring at the rhino because in the, uh, I guess, 1850s probably or maybe 1840s when they were spending time together, a rhinoceros wasn't <laughs> well known. I don't know. This was before YouTube, kids. So <laughs> the idea of a rhinoceros, this animal was... Um, something pretty amazing. And I love that this is the image that Gopnik has utilized to differentiate what he calls liberal ideals and utopian ones. So I'm going to read a little section here by Gopnik on this to set the stage for your mind. Gopnik. All living things, Darwin taught us, are compromises of a kind. The best that can be done for that moment between the demands of the environment and the genetic inheritance it has to work with. No living thing is ideal. A rhinoceros is just a big pig with a horn on it. The ideal of the unicorn is derived from the fact of the rhinoceros. The dream image of the rhinoceros, the single horned animal reported on and then idealized by the medieval imagination. People idealize unicorns and imagine unicorns and make icons icons out of unicorns and write fables about unicorns. We hunt them. They're perfect. The only trouble with them is that they do not exist. They never have. The rhino is ungainly and ugly and short-legged and imperfect and squat, but the rhinoceros is real. It exists, and it is formidable. Most political visions are unicorns, perfect imaginary creatures we chase and will never find. Liberalism is the rhinoceros. It's hard to love. It's funny to look at. It isn't pretty, but it's a completely successful animal. A rhino can overturn an SUV and run it right over, horn out. I love this imagery. This was the... Uh, one of the things he talks about is this is the rhinoceros liberalism is the rhinoceros manifesto ungainly imperfect not very efficient often and manifestly real and existent (laughs) as opposed to the unicorn which is imaginary and i just think that that's such a a great opening heuristic to use for how to even think about this is that no one (laughs) claims that the rhino well there are probably some but the rhinoceros is not a beautiful animal but it's very successful and that's one of the theses of this book gopnik claims that and i and i agree i think the evidence is is quite clear on these things if you take the long view of human history liberalism doesn't have the neat edges of some of these more sharply tuned political philosophies 
but it's been by far the most successful political philosophy in getting the most people out of the direst situations over the longest period of time. And it does it by ungainliness, reform, debate, reason, votes, democracy. And I can even hear it in my own mind, the skeptic in my own mind, picking out every single thing that exists in the modern world that doesn't line up with that description of what liberal liberalism has done for our species. And I guess all I can say is that you gotta think about it on a longer timeline. Yeah, I mean, the last 20, well, certainly five years of our culture, but the last 20 years has been kind of contentious. But human life has always been contentious. There's never been a period where it hasn't been. And I think part of being able to take the problems of the modern world seriously is knowing exactly how to contextualize them in the history of where we've come from, where only 500 years ago, your life is at the whim of whatever local power or strongman says it. And if they're not interested, or, or whatever religious, if you're if you were living in Europe, then like whatever religious side of the religious divide you came on that like you're just in a war <laughs> like, there's like a century of war in europe over religion and something gopnik also does later in the book is contrast right-wing and left-wing criticisms of liberalism which is really interesting to read uh, because you think he does a good job of explicating those things i'll go into a little bit today so that's just a long-winded way of saying that even though so much of our kind of intake of the world through media and social media and activism makes it seem like liberalism has failed too many people too many of the time. It's a total paradigm shift in saying <laughs> humans failing the vast majority of other humans is the default. That's the norm. That's actually what happens in the state of nature and in a state of not being able to take on board the fact that other people have the same moral conscience that you do. And that minor leap is what leads you to look for unicorns instead of rhinoceroses in your political philosophy. And so Gopnik goes on to write, the critical liberal words are not liberty and democracy alone, vital that they are, but also humanity and reform, tolerance and pluralism, self-realization and autonomy, the vocabulary of passionate connection and self-chosen community. And this is something I talked a little bit about in an episode that I did on Karl Popper's distinction between individualism and egoism is that liberalism as arisen through liberal-minded people, stems from the fact that there's a passionate need for self-chosen community. And Gopnik talks about Comic-Con, or people who love certain bands, or just the kind of emergent, natural way people form subcultures around things that they love is part of the beginning of the liberal ethos, which understands that if you want to allow that kind of idiosyncrasy of association for yourself, you need to engage in a society that has the liberty to let other people do it as well. And your taste and your opinion and your dislike of another group subculture is not a good enough reason to stop it because the fact that you love your own subculture the way you do, that is what brings forward the idea of letting other people enjoy theirs as well. <laughs> and then to just buffer that point, Gopnik writes a few pages later on page 21, Gopnik. Liberalism is as distinct a tradition as exists in political history, but it suffers from being a practice before it is an ideology, a temperament and a tone, and a way of managing the world more than a fixed set of beliefs. And this, like, reminded me of a little joke I always made, you know, 
I mean, there's a tangent to be gone on here of how I think classical or academic philosophy really puts people um, down a garden path that is not super useful for talking about the real world. I always kind of tongue-in-cheek had this comment of um, reason is better in practice than in theory. (laughs) Reasonable takes on the world affect the real world way more than they can make sense in any sort of logical full-throated philosophical defense of the, you know, concept capital R platonic form reason. And I think that that makes sense because humans are not as <laughs> perfect, thoroughgoing and unaddled in their own mental structures and what they think about the world over time. And yet we still somehow stumble through things to move on to a, a tomorrow. I love that that's part of um what he's talking about because then a little bit later in the page and I think this is super crucial because this is a hu- my assertion that I think can be backed up through talking about this is that liberalism is humanism. It, it stems from a humanism. And so here's Gopnik writing again. Liberal people have made liberalism. A liberal credo without characters in action is not only hard to love, it is also impossible to see. So we need John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor and other examples he uses in this introduction are... George Eliot and George Lewis, or Lewis. George Eliot, the great author, uh, Marian Evans, I guess was her real name, and how they lived together. And throughout this whole book, Gopnik talks about, he uses the example of, of so many liberal-minded people doing things to help the world, such as he talks about Bayard Rustin, he talks about Frederick Douglass, he talks about Abraham Lincoln. He talks about many, many, many people who have... <laughs> thrown effort into the ring to make situations better for specific people. And I think that that is going to be a good lead-in to the next point I want to make, because there is an important aspect of liberalism, which is its specificity to a time and a place, and a hurting group of people right in front of you that cannot be denied. And so... Here's Gopnik writing again. But in the end, their goals were specific, not utopian, capable of being achieved by democratic means in democratic legislatures, even if only when the cost of not achieving them became too great for the powers already in place. He's talking about some of the great social changes in the 19th and 20th century. Among um, He uses examples there of, what is it, civil disobedience, women chaining themselves to parliament fences and bravery of the Charists in Britain and the Popular Front in France or the Selma Marchers. Selma Marchers are all part of the story of human self-liberation. This is important because the next point he talks about is this person in history, Michel de Montaigne. And here's Gopnik talking about Montaigne. Montaigne, the essayist, understood how divided we are as human beings, not just how fantastically likely we are to grow away from our ideals, but how incompatible our ideals usually are with one another. And I think that this is such a crucial element to understand fundamentally about why why I certainly roll my eyes or at least look very askance on very politically confident people. And I think it can be captured in two quotes, a modern one and a still a modern one, but a slightly older one. The poetic one and the old, slightly older one comes from Solzhenitsyn, who in the Gulag Archipelago wrote, if only we could separate all the good people from the bad people and then just get rid of all the bad people. But the line between good and evil runs through every human heart and who wants to cut out a piece of their own heart. 
And then in a more modern sense, Douglas Murray, the great British journalist, talks about how he raises it as a little bit of a, an observation, I guess. Like, don't you think it's interesting that most countries, and certainly most democratic countries, over a long period of time, over many, many years, have an almost 50-50 split between a liberal party and a conservative party? Now, obviously, you can get into, like degrees and different parts of emphasis that coalesce into one or two parties that represent the quote-unquote conservative or liberal side or leftist side. But he says, why is it so close? Why is it so close in societies? Is it just always the case that preordained there must be 45 to 55% of conservative people and 45 to 55% of liberal people? He says, well, no, there's a much more parsimonious reason for this, and that is, for the most part, unless you're an extremist, Everybody's got a little bit conservative and a little bit liberal in their own hearts. Some people might feel conservative about guns, and they might feel liberal about immigration. They might feel conservative about uh, reproductive rights, but they might feel liberal about gay rights. There's no necessary connection between feeling one way or the other. And so this is so manifestly obvious to me (laughs) by introspecting on the vicissitudes of my own heart. There are some things that strike me as I feel one way, which I can later interpret as a conservative reaction to that social phenomenon. And there are completely different things that strike me a different way that in reflection, I can say uh, it's a very liberal reaction to that phenomenon. That is what Montaigne is writing about is how these we have incompatible ideals because human cognition and psychology is so messy and so imperfect. And the liberal ethos understands that frailty and that important word in all of this, which is fallibilism. This is something that can't be too overemphasized. The liberal ethos understands how fallible human beings are, even the best ones. How many mistakes are made by even the most talented, most intelligent, most creative people. And that is taken on board in terms of understanding when it comes to the humanism underlying why we would want a liberal set of a liberal mindset as we go about one of my personal critiques of conservatism i'll set religion to a side like purely kind of history-based or order-based conservatism or more left-wing ideologies, almost any political ideology, actually, or even political philosophy. You could throw a number of economic theories into all of this, too. The great downside to all of them is how little they pay attention to the rudimentary, ugly, and imperfect facts of human psychology and how there's a kind of assumption of infallibilism that goes on in a very self-assured partisan, let's say, or the politicians who speak on their behalf, especially in the when you analyze some of the rhetoric around so many modern politicians, especially in America, I just get a sense of it's not even a lack of humility. It's a lack of it occurring that a lot of the problems endemic in the world right now are going to be replaced by future problems when we solve the ones that we have. <laughs> there will never be no problems. It's not even a paradox because it's just, it's a it's the liberal idea that we're going to solve problems knowing that new problems will emerge out of the old ones and that's okay. We'll solve those problems too. That's the 
improvement over perfection model that liberalism gives as opposed to, let's say, Marxism. There is no utopia because problems are stamped into the lowly origin of the human species. And if history's shown us anything, it's that the trying to rectify those stamped-in problems of human nature often become way worse. The, the cure is way worse than the disease. Another line that I think bolsters all that on page 31, Gopnik. Liberalism's task is not to imagine the perfect society and drive us toward it, but to point out what's cruel in the society we have now and fix it if we possibly can. This reminds me of a distinction I got from Steven Pinker's book, I believe it was The Blank Slate, when he talks about there's very different political paradigms that come out from different views of the nature of life. And so he talks about the tragic versus the utopian view of life. And the tragic view of life is that is one I just articulated, I think, where humans are born into, as Christopher Hitchens would say, a losing struggle. We're born into a world that has millions of things that appear to be trying to kill us, and disease and death and famine are the norm, not not the other way around. And we struggle, and we do our best to survive with the companionship of those around us. And so it's no surprise where there's problems in the world. And the utopian view of life is that it's kind of the more noble, savage, Rousseauian Humans are uh, noble in the state of nature, and it's civilization that corrupts us. And if we can just turn the knobs from a top-down perspective on civilization, we'll get utopia, the perfect society. A way to encapsulate this idea is that the utopian wonders, how do we get to heaven? And what I'm calling the liberal, but I believe it, I think the liberal says, well, how do we just get a little bit further away from hell with every step? I mean, it might seem a subtle difference. I, I would say it's a profound difference in how you approach the world. And the liberal idea of um, don't make the perfect the enemy of the little bit better <laughs> is how I would phrase it, I guess. And the amount of successes we've seen over history of liberal society has been unparalleled in human history ever. Furthering that point, Gopnik, we know what's rotting by its smell, and our goal can be simply to keep our nurture from spoiling. We don't know what is good, but we do know what is bad. Cruelty is bad. Starvation is bad. State murder is bad. Okay, well, we don't know the, we don't know the perfect solution, but we can know what we can stop doing and start problem solving. Fixing the imperfect is enough to do, even if we have no idea whatever the perfect is like. Now, again, I think perfection is an intellectual error inherited from Plato, but whatever. <laughs> Thanks, Plato. And then he talks about revolution versus reform. And here's Gopnik. More permanent positive social change is made incrementally rather than by revolutionary transformation. This was originally something like a temperamental instinct, a preference for social peace bought at a reasonable price, but by now it is a rational preference. The nameable goals of the socialist and even Marxist manifestos of the 19th century, public education, free health care, a government role in the economy, votes for women, have all been achieved, mostly peacefully and mostly successfully, by acts of reform in liberal countries. The attempt to achieve them by fiat and command in the Soviet Union and China and elsewhere created catastrophes, moral and practical, on a scale still almost impossible to grasp. This is 
anticipating why leftists hate liberals is the liberal insistence on reform over revolution. But he points out there's an obvious or a seemingly obvious paradox here, which is that two of the most famous liberal societies we can think of, America and France, both began with revolutions. And then Gopnik writes, and bloodier ones, particularly in the American case, than we sometimes remember. But here's here's his counterpoint. And I this is really interesting. Gopnik. But both revolutions happened only after the process of reform was stopped cold by diehard reactionaries. The Declaration of Independence makes it plain that the founders thought of revolution as a last resort after every other kind of petition had been thwarted. And the actual violent acts of the French Revolution came about simultaneously with an attempt to keep the king in power and move gradually towards a more egalitarian society. The revolutionaries in France at first wanted a constitutional monarchy and only turned to regicide after the king of France and his family, wrongly encouraged by the other reactionary powers, tried to flee. Obviously, the French Revolution got off the rails. It was because it got more reactionary, not that it had a limiting principle. And so here's the important part. Liberals are not afraid of revolution, but liberals will remain reluctant revolutionaries. And this is something I noticed when... David and I, my cousin David, who's the co-host on my other podcast, Really True Fiction, we did an episode where we watched the movie The Patriot, uh, the 2000 Mel Gibson film. And one of the things that really struck me in that story was how, I think his name was Ben, Mel Gibson's character, was so uninterested in revolution. He was the liberal in the sense that he was very reluctant and he wanted to try everything else. And I think that makes the point, or that buffets the point made here by Gopnik, is that the reluctant revolutionaries and it's a last resort. But there's something so important in this aspect, because the liberal notion, it's a minimum necessary force without vengeance, if it has to be violent. And here's the point that on page 44, here's how Gopnik phrases it. Violence spilled over into vengeance, often in the American Revolution, as the stories of the United Emperor Loyalist, Empire Loyalists, who built up so much of my homeland of Canada, can testify. But revenge never became, as in so many other revolutions, including the French one, a perverse moral principle. To put it in the classical terms that Hamilton and Madison and Washington so loved and so often used, the liberals who made our revolution, our being the United States Revolution, believed in the model of Cincinnatus rather than Caesar. Cincinnatus was the Roman general who retired to his farm. Caesar conquered and became a dictator. This pattern of renouncing violence once its immediate ends are met is deeply imprinted in the liberal temperament. It's why Grant and Eisenhower, victorious generals, took office in business suits and offered preferred other business-suited people to soldiers. Uh, that would be Ulysses S. Grant, I believe. And then here's the um, important philosophical point. Gopnik. Liberals believe in fighting wars as hard as necessary, ending them as soon as possible, and rebuilding the defeated country as charitably as one can. The necessity of war-making, including revolutionary war, is part of the liberal tradition. Liberalism isn't pacifism and tries to learn the lessons of pacifist follies, but the cult and celebration of violence, including revolutionary violence for its own sake, is alien to the liberal way. And I think that this is totally in line with revolution as a last resort to stop horrible injustice that is palpable, that can be seen by everyone at all times in the society that you're in. Now, what constitutes that, I think, <laughs> needs to be taken very seriously and needs to be debated, which is another <laughs> liberal concept. 
which is incalculably important. So other than those kind of like singularities, what Gopnik is talking about is that the idea of reform is so much more important to the liberal temperament because it's nonviolent. And the insistence on nonviolence is a, is a kind of, or, or not initiating violence is such a important element. And again, specificity of language, violence being physical force, strikes, hits, punches, weapons, arms. We're not talking about words here. Words are not in the liberal temperament violence um, that can be used horribly and words can be used maliciously, cravenly, tendentiously, superciliously, or uh, often, <laughs> let's say, superfluous, superfluidly. Is that the right way to say it? Superfluously? I don't know. It probably was. It, it was probably unnecessarily extra. <laughs> but they're not violence in the term that adults need to take seriously in order to debate our problems in the world in the first place. And so here's Gopnik writing again on the importance of debate and reform. Well, debate to reform. The process of reform is never ending, not because we are always searching for utopia, but because as the growth of knowledge alters our conditions, we need new understandings to change our plans. Dynamic variables. Things change. New information comes in. Things we didn't know before, we now know. The hindsight bias is so tricky here because it's really hard to remember a, ta a point in time where you didn't know something that you now know. We very easily uh, retrospectively throw in our current knowledge to all of our past versions of ourself, and this becomes difficult and, and relevant when we evaluate our past decisions. And reform keeps the conversation happening, which is the only thing that allows us to understand errors that we're currently engaged in. And as he points out in an earlier passage, it's all those reforms that let liberal societies actually accomplish all of the things from the socialist and Marxist manifestos without the gulag, without the tens of millions of deaths that happen. And again, it doesn't mean, obviously, lots of horrible things have happened in liberal societies, but it can only be noted and fixed through debate, which is only allowed in liberal societies. The sins and errors of the history of a liberal country can only be talked about if the society itself is free and open for them to be talked about, which I think is pretty crucial in the um, history of liberal freedom and liberal tradition. And then the only other thing I think, so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to make this kind of a two-parter. This will be part one. And the other one, I'll talk about the right wing and the left wing politically, their critiques of liberalism, because I think otherwise this will be a really long episode. But there's other, one other thing in this intro section I wanted to bring up, or the Rhinoceros Manifesto. And it's something that he talks about with the writer George Eliot. So this is Gopnik writing about George Eliot. She was a feminist, but of a very particular kind. She was, a little shockingly, against women's suffrage when Mill, then an MP, proposed it quixotically in Parliament. It wasn't that she thought women's suffrage wrong exactly, but that in another sense, more prescient to our of our current preoccupations, she saw that political freedom would never be enough. If freedom wasn't rooted in women being able to claim their private lives for themselves, they didn't have it. Freedom begins in the bedroom and in the mind. 
That was why she was, for all of her hesitation about suffrage, unimpeded in her enthusiasm for women's education and pressed for the establishment of a women's college at Cambridge. The belief that liberation begins in the bedroom, that women have to feel free at home before they can be feel, feel free in the world, was one lesson of Dorothy's marriage to Mr. Casabon in Middlemarch, the at first impressive and soon enough puerile pedant who is writing his, fame, his fatuous Key to All Mythologies. Dorothy's enslavement to a lesser mind domestically is like the enslavement of all women to a lesser place politically. It is an extension of Harriet Taylor's observation about the little dictator at the dinner table, with the additional truth that too many women chose their own dictator from mistaken infatuation, repented over a lifetime. Liberation, freedom begins in the bedroom and in the mind. This is one of the things I hope to be communicating and, and really like working through perhaps in a <laughs> in a very liberal sense i'm working through by even recording these episodes my own thoughts on this the psychological freedom that comes with growing and becoming and thinking more and developing more perspectives about the world i guess one of the things that even though i don't talk it doesn't get talked a lot about in this book the whole point of a liberal political structure and a liberal temperament in public life is so that we can go pursue meanings in our private lives that become the bedrock of our existential existence and what we, you know, quote unquote, on our deathbed, realize that we were happy that we engaged in. I personally take quite seriously the aphorism in The Gay Science by Nietzsche of eternal recurrence. If a demon slips into your loneliest of lonelies and says this life that you've lived, you've lived it over and over forever and ever. Would you gnash your teeth or would you hug the demon and say no one had said anything more beautiful to him? Well, I hope to be in the second camp. And I, I think this <laughs> might seem far afield, but this is part of what Gopnik is talking about. And this is why it resonated with me so personally is that Gopnik brings to life to me someone who has heard the name, but I don't really know George Eliot. I actually have started reading Middlemarch just because of how much she was talked about in this book and brings to life, like he says, not just the liberal credo, but the liberal people who understand that freedom begins in the mind. It begins in the bedroom. And again, liberal political structures and philosophies exist to allow that freedom to happen for individual people discovering what it means to be alive. So that I think will be where I stop for for today in terms of this particular book. I think I'll probably, I will do a part two at some point on the, the other political criticisms of liberalism because I think they're really interesting. But again, it would make this episode much too long. So if you like or don't like anything you're hearing, obviously the liberal temperament leaves me open for debate. And if you ask any of my friends, they'll tell you I love it. So feel free to send me an email. The email address for this podcast is theliberalsoul87. Uh, that's the numbers 87, not spelled out. Theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. You can find The Liberal Soul on Facebook. There's a Twitter account as well. I'm totally open to being contacted with your opinions on any of these things that I talk about in the podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the episode today. My name is Luke Mason, and you found The Liberal Soul. Mm-hmm.